This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. It's not a matter of if you're going to hit a setback in graduate school. It's whether it'll hit you back. <laughs> and it probably will. It almost certainly will. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we look for ways to cope with grad school rejection letters and make a plan to get your career goals back on track. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 129. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello, Daniel. Josh, busy times. Busy times. Uh, aren't they all busy? I don't know. I guess I guess they are all busy. This one, right now we're in. We're recording uh, at the beginning of March, and this coronavirus, soon to be pandemic, it seems like, is kind of sweeping the nation and sweeping the world. And so I feel like a lot of attention is being sucked up into this topic of coronavirus. Yeah, my wife was scheduled to go to a large national conference, South by Southwest, EDU, leaving two days from now, and they just canceled it today. Just a few minutes ago, yeah. 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 So big changes are afoot, and, and I think everybody is unsure what's coming. There's an interest to us in the Hello PhD world. We would love to talk to somebody who is working in an, a coronavirus lab. More for the human side of that story, which is, uh, what is it, what happens when the attention of the entire world turns to your little realm of research. Yeah, there's kind of this trope, and we've used it before on the show too, Dan, is as a PhD student specifically, you are so hyper-focused on creating this very minute bit of specific wisdom. But how much is that flipped on your head if suddenly the research you're doing becomes directly related to a global news story and suddenly everyone on the planet is interested in what you're doing? And those notes you forgot to take six months ago now become really relevant, <laughs> and that control you wish you had done uh, may may save lives. Didn't you used to always, wasn't there a little piece of you, Dan, when you were in grad school that got a little bit of comfort from the fact that at the end of the day, it nobody cared? <laughs> nothing really hinged on whether or not your experiments worked, except for you? I guess that is a small comfort, Josh, other than wasting five years, but it's fine. So we actually did reach out to a grad student in a coronavirus lab um, that I happen to know of. Several. Yep. And you got at least one reply. <laughs> it's a busy time for them. It is busy. And one of the things that, that we heard across the board is that these grad students probably put in long hours in general, but right now it's 10, 12, 14-hour days every day, and, and not just for the reasons that you might think of. Right. With a public health crisis, time matters, and uh, people's lives are, are kind of hanging in the balance, and understanding the virus becomes very important from that perspective. But, but the person who replied listed another method that they're very busy. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine suddenly, uh, not just you trying to help out with this major problem that's going on in the world, but with all this extra attention and funding, suddenly tons and tons of labs are interested in jumping into the field that your lab was already working in, which creates a lot of extra competition that maybe you didn't have before. So I thought it was kind of an interesting thing to think about as a grad student. You know, you are interested certainly in, in making the world a better place, impacting public health with your research, 
but also I guess you still are a grad student and you need to publish papers and do the things you need to do to have your committee meetings and get out. What a weird juxtaposition. And, and now everybody is doing the same experiments that you've <laughs> taken too long to do. Yeah, I mean, getting scooped is something we always talk about. Yeah. is an awful thing to happen to you as a grad student. And now it's almost inevitable. So I guess it's sort of the flip side of this coin of doing interesting research that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, so if you are in a coronavirus lab and listening to this, or you know somebody who might be and, and might have a few minutes to talk to us, we would love to do an interview while the while the work is ongoing and then maybe check back in a little bit later when things settle down to find out what that was like. So pass us along to podcast at hellophd.com. Dan, one of the things you've probably seen that is largely unnecessary but is happening in the community around us was at the grocery store, hand sanitizer sold out, soap, low supply. Uh, people suddenly, which I think is a good thing, having interest in their hygiene. Not a bad thing. Uh, but I read in the absence of hand sanitizer vodka is another option i thought i thought vodka was not an option tito's vodka came out and said you cannot use it it is not a high enough concentration they actually had to do a press release well we don't have any of that but this is what i'm trying to do dan is an awkward transition into the ethanol section i'm trying to prevent you from spreading (laughs) disinformation well we are certainly not going to pour this ethanol we have in front of us on our hands because this i think is a very nice beer okay tell us about it Sent to us by a faculty member, Dan. This is our first. This might be our first faculty beer. That's exciting. I was interested to know we have faculty who listen to the show. Uh, so yeah, this is from from Pat, who's a faculty member at UNC. So thanks, Pat. Thank you. All right, so Dan, this is from Allagash Brewing Company in Portland, Maine, and this is the Farm to Face Sour Ale Aged on Peaches. Aged on peaches. Yeah, Farm to Table does not take it far enough. I need it directly in my face. Farm right to your face. I think there were a couple steps in between. I read a little bit about, I read the marketing speak on the Allagash Brewing website. I think you'll like this. Drinking this medium-bodied beer is like biting into a juicy yet tart peach. Farm to face is brewed as a pale ale and then fermented for 10 months in stainless tanks with house yeast. After primary fermentation, pediococcus, lactobacillus, and a whole lot of peaches are added. Aromas of green apple and graham cracker accompany a lingering peachy finish. I'm looking forward to this graham cracker essence. Yeah, well, let's open it. It is a corked bottle. It had the the foil cap over it. And pediococcus is not one that I am very familiar with. We've we've had things with lactobacillus. We've had Britannomyces. Wikipedia says pediococcus is something in sauerkraut. Oh, Oh, there it goes. There it goes. And it's spilling everywhere. (laughs) Fantastic. Glad I suggested opening it near the recording equipment. Here comes the dog. Clean up crew. (laughs) The dog is only slightly intoxicated. It's fine. All right, Dan, I am getting a lot of yeasty bread smell. How's it taste? That's because it spilled all over the rug. (laughs) You're going to wake up tomorrow and get a yeasty bread smell, and then in two weeks... There's literally beer everywhere. <laughs> All right, what do you think of the taste, Dan? Okay, so the my the first take is it's it's cloudy. It's not a filtered beer, and your first taste is I'm puckering here. Yeah, there is some definite sourness, but if you wait a second, you will get peaches uh, slowly melting in. You got to wait till the sour clears. Yeah, you're right. There is some peach on the finish for sure. I'm interested. Are you in green apple? I think I'm picking up for sure, just because it's sour. You know, one thing I found about these sour beers, Dan. And I have said on the show that I have, I'm unsure about sour beers in general. 
But I think my problem in the past has been I'll be at a brewery or at a bar and I'll try one thinking maybe it'll be different. And the first taste hits me, almost catches me off guard. But the few times we've had sours on the show, I realize over time, I don't know if it's my, my taste buds or my senses adapt to the sourness of the beer. And then I actually enjoy it the more and more I drink it. So maybe that's been my problem in the past is I just don't give myself time to acclimate to the sour beer. I think that's right. I mean, we're not experts in how taste works, but I have to imagine that the sour sensation will dull over time and then you'll get some of the other flavors. Yeah, it could be. Thanks, Pat, for providing this one. Yeah, excellent. All right, Dan, what do our our friends at Promega have for us this week? Well, I like to click around the Student Resource Center at promega.com slash HelloPhD periodically. And today I decided to check out the cloning page. I was actually searching for any kind of virology links, but I ended up clicking on the cloning page. And there's a whole section there about T-vector cloning. And I am way too far out of graduate school to know what that was. But thankfully, Josh, uh, there is a frequently asked questions page that makes it clear in less than a paragraph what that is. And you learned about T-vector cloning. Yes. On Promega's site. A little T-tailed overhang so you can clone anything with an A overhang. Makes sense. It's T like the DNA uh, nucleotide The tea. nucleotide T, yeah. yep. Little T-tails. Little that's, T-tails, That's the yeah. answer. Great. So anyway, lots more on there. Please go check it out, promega.com slash HelloPhD. All right, Dan, let's get into our topic of the week. Dan, we get emails from time to time from listeners with specific questions they have regarding some aspect of graduate training. But I don't think we have ever received as many messages and emails about the same topic in a short period of time as we did our topic today. Yeah, this is a time where I think we're hearing from people who are asking interesting questions about uh, what do I wear to my interview and how do I choose a school to attend? Um, But we got a lot of emails this year from people who were in the middle of that process where other people were getting interviews, they were getting letters back, and maybe this student applied a few places and didn't get those letters, and they were wondering, did I just not get accepted, or what is happening right now, and what do I do if I didn't get accepted this year? It's it's a rough, it's a rough, rough time not knowing uh, what your future holds in the next year. And we have spent so many episodes discussing all the different considerations that go into deciding where to apply and putting your statement together, just all the work involved. And so it is a really tough experience where you put all that effort, you put all of yourself and all of your money too into applying to these programs and seemingly you get nothing back for your efforts. Yeah, I'm going to read a few excerpts here just to give you the the range of, of some of the feelings we heard, some of the sentiments. Grace wrote and said, I'm currently waiting on seven responses from graduate schools, and I'm anticipating several or all rejections. I'm not being self-deprecating, just realistic. I'm an unusual applicant. So on that end of the spectrum, Grace was feeling like, okay, maybe I you know, needed some work on my application, or maybe I'm an unusual type of applicant. So I didn't have high expectations. Chris wrote and said, I'm writing to you in the midst of the fall 2020 application cycle for most biomedical PhD programs. For me, however, it seems to be the end, as I have been rejected from five schools and am expecting three more rejections soon enough without any invitations for interview. I've had my time in regret, disappointment, etc., and now I'm thinking about what to do next. You know, one of the things Chris said that really immediately jumped out at me and that this seems to be the end of the line, the end of the process, and this is going to be a spoiler alert, Dan, but I think we'll find that this is... This rejection from graduate school season 
may just be an important turning point, and it's just going to be a piece of the puzzle, a piece of the story down the line. Okay. I'll read one last one uh, from Nikki, who said, I applied to 10 programs and have not heard back yet with interviews. Uh, Frowny face. I'm assuming I am not invited to any interviews this late stage in the game because on Grad Cafe, applicants have posted for schools that I applied to, and they have been invited to interviews. I also have received rejection from three schools. I'm assuming if you do not have an interview, you are likely rejected. Should I just give up at the thought of me obtaining a PhD? I feel like a mess right now. And I think what those those emails captured is you put your hope into something. Presumably, if, if they've been listening to the podcast, they've taken the time to figure out this is actually what I really want to do. Hopefully they've heeded all our warnings about not applying just because you're not sure what to do next or because that feels like the next stage. It's something that they really wanted to do. Uh, they applied to a lot of programs and in some cases they seem to do everything right. A few of the people wrote and told us, I had great letters of recommendation. I have a good GPA. I have research experience. And still they didn't get the interview. And I think it's heartbreaking. It's it's hard. Uh, and you hear it in those emails. And I read them so that people can hear, if you didn't get in this year, you're not alone. Other people are feeling this way. It, it, you probably look on the the message boards and see everybody getting in. And you hear us talking about people getting offers and things like that. But the reality is lots of people don't get in their first year or second sometimes, third. As you know, one part of my day job is uh, direct admissions for a large biomedical PhD program. And and when I say large, I think from a national perspective, at least in the United States, I mean, it's a pretty high volume operation. Um, so we got around 1,900 applications this year which was a record for us. It was a lot. And there are not 1,900 positions available. There were not. And actually, for interviews, Dan, we interviewed about 340 of those 1,900 people. And so what that means, and Dan, I mentioned to you tonight before we started recording, You know, I sent out, what would that be, uh, 1,500 rejection emails today. So absolutely, you're not alone in, in getting rejected from programs. Now, granted, sometimes there's a bit of randomness that's baked into the process. And I know we work really hard. I work really hard thinking about how to make the graduate school admissions process as fair as possible to all of our applicants. But even with that, there is still a bit of randomness um, in the process. It's not like there were 340 really great applicants and all the rest were really terrible applicants. You know, there becomes this, this competitive crunch and absolutely they're excellent applicants with tons of potential who, for one reason or another, their application didn't rise to um, into that grouping of of people who got interviews. Okay, well, I want to I want to play interviewer of you today, Josh, as somebody who has has worked and seen inside the process, and ask some of the questions that we got from listeners to help them understand not only maybe some reasons that maybe they didn't get in this year, but also what can they do about it to make that application next year even. Uh, more compelling and, and give them a much better shot. So whether you're a student who maybe you didn't get any offers, maybe you got offers, but not at the one or two schools that you really wanted to go to most, um, you're you're kind of feeling those painful feelings of rejection. So is it all right if I ask you just a few questions? Sure, Dan. I'd be <laughs> okay. honored. Um, so I think the first thing people are going to want to know is, and, and you started to allude to this, why did it happen? And And how is it that the programs are choosing who gets an interview in the first place? Because um, as you said, there are 1,900 applications in this one program and 340 get an interview. So so what does the review process look like? Yeah, so I want to say at the beginning, 
you know, one facet of, of every PhD program is there's a certain level of competitiveness. And when I say competitiveness, competitiveness is really just a function of the number of applications that come in versus the number of slots that they have to give out. And I mentioned the numbers for our program, which certainly I would classify as competitive, but we're not the most competitive uh, by far. Um, we're also not the least competitive. There are, there's some variability based on a lot of factors. And there's a lot of great science and a lot of really great experiences you can have as a graduate student in lots of different institutions. So I think one thing to think about, even at the application stage, especially if you've gone through an application cycle where maybe you didn't get the outcomes that you wanted, is really take a look at what's the competitiveness of the program. Did I only apply to the upper echelon, the top, top competitive schools? Just because a school is the most competitive did not, does not mean that's the school with the best science going on. There can be a lot of reasons that factor into that. Is it a place that a lot of people want to live? Is it a school that has a, a lot of name recognition? Um, these are things that can drive competitiveness that maybe have little to do with that program being a good fit for you um, academically or your research interests. Is there somewhere to see the ratios to, to find out how many applications for how many actual positions there are to just get a sense. Maybe, maybe one of these people who applied to 10 places and didn't get hear back from anybody, they're applying to the 10 most competitive schools in the country or the world. It's a little hard to know. I don't think there that those data are not always out there. I think you can, some quick and dirty ways you can figure it out. If it's a school that your family members who are not scientists know the name of, <laughs> that's probably a competitive yeah. school. Um, you know, the Ivy League, the Harvard, the Yale, the Stanford, right? Schools like that. If it's on a coast, it's a large, well-known university on one of the coasts. It is likely more competitive. There are a lot more people on the East Coast and the West Coast in larger metropolitan areas where a lot of people live. Those types of places are likely going to get more applications than maybe some programs that are equally good but are in the center of the country, Again, that has nothing to do with the quality of the science or the faculty that are at those places, but there are fewer people that are that want to live in those places to be quite honest okay that's i mean that's helpful to as as something to think through even before we get into how does an application review work uh, to know whether maybe maybe next year if i'm if I'm playing this forward, I want to apply to a wider range of competitive schools just so that I get to the place where I get accepted somewhere and I can decide, is that the right opportunity for me or do I want to wait to get into somewhere else? It's like the advice that's often given when you apply to undergrad institutions is you want to have your reach schools and then your target schools and then your safety schools, quote unquote. And it can be harder to figure out what that means for graduate programs because there is a lot less data on the competitiveness, as you were saying. But I think with some of those guidelines, like we just mentioned, you can suss that out a little bit. And you can always just ask programs and they might be willing to share those numbers with you. Okay. Well, take me through the review process. So 1900, I assume electronic documents show up in your inbox mm -hmm. on a given day? Over the application period, which usually runs from August until uh, the deadline, which for us is around the beginning of December. And are you processing them as they come in or are you waiting until the deadline is passed and then you start? So for our process, and I think a lot of processes are similar, we begin really reviewing these closer to the deadline. So at least for the biomedical PhD programs, a lot of deadlines seem to congregate around early December. So in the United States, with all of the 
you know, that could be classified as the holiday season. There are a few big holidays that are in there. So the Thanksgiving holiday around the end of November. I know for us, and I'd be willing to gather a lot of programs, aren't really starting to review too many applications before Thanksgiving. But between Thanksgiving and the Christmas holidays, that's when a lot of application review is taking place. So if I am really serious about this next year, I probably want to be on the leading end of the application time period, not the tail end. Is that right? I think we've, we might have covered this on a, a previous episode. I forgot. But Sorry. There, is, there is some advantage to getting your application in early. So some programs might really review applications as they come in, especially if they don't receive as large of a number. But I can say even for larger programs like ours, there can be some minor advantages to getting your application in early. We do send them out. We do send the applications out to our admissions committees in the order that they come in. So even though there is a compressed time period that we're reviewing them, the ones that are going to go out in the first batches are the ones that came in and are complete so first. So before the reviewers get fatigued, my application might be in the in the pile. So that is one advantage for sure. Another advantage is if you imagine this scenario, so let's say admissions committee, a given admissions committee meets three times between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so the first time they meet, they're reviewing approximately a third of the applications, the first third that came in. Well, they're going to be a little bit conservative in the interview offers they're going to give out then because they want to make sure they budget these offers so that they're not out of offers by the time they get to the last third, right? But what can happen and how that could play to your advantage if you're someone who got your application in early, there's really three things that could happen to your application if you're in the first batch. That is one, you could just go ahead and get an interview offer. So that'd be great. And they could do that before they've done the other two Yeah, absolutely. Meetings. So, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, because we want to get interview offers out too, right? Your application could get rejected, but it's probably not going to um, at that point in time, right? Because again, we want to compare it to the overall pool, not just that initial um, subgroup. So the third thing that could happen to your application, only if you're in the early group, is they might hold your application and then you might actually come up for discussion a second time in a later meeting. Whereas if you were one of the last people to get your application in, you really just have one shot to be discussed in that very last meeting at the very end of the process. Okay, that's really helpful. So so for next year, I'm going to get my application in as, as close to the beginning as I possibly can. And typically the materials that I can use to apply are out how far before I can turn them in. Is it is it like they come out and the deadline is set at the same day? Usually, you know, ours comes out sometime around August, sometime in mid to late August. Um, one thing I do want to say, Dan, when I when we're talking about getting your application in maybe a little bit earlier, not right at the deadline. So that not only means just the application components that you are responsible for, but that also means those letters of reference that are a little bit out of your control. It's monitoring that those have come in. So the application the is not considered well. in until those things are in. Is that right? The committee wouldn't take a look at it until the letters of recommendation made it? So if you submitted early and we were ready for the first batch to review, but zero or one out of your three letters was in, we would probably wait. We would probably consider that incomplete. And that's probably for your best in your best interest, right? right? So what you what you really want to do, and, and I think most of these application systems allow this now, emails are generated that go out to your recommenders when you, as you start preparing your application um, within the 
the system. You can send reminders through that system, but you can also monitor which letters have been received. You really should communicate with your recommenders, make sure they know when the deadline is. But also, if your goal is to get all of your application materials in a week early, make sure your recommenders know that, and that's what your deadline is. Give them a deadline two weeks ahead of the actual deadline. Yeah, you can always do that. Tell them a deadline that is earlier than the actual deadline. Because people will do it after a deadline, no matter what the deadline is. Yeah, absolutely. So... We've got our applications in. I'm on a review committee. I assume I'm reviewing these all electronically or I print them out. Dan, we care about the trees. Great. So I've got an electronic version of this. What do I do first? Because I've got grades. I've got research experience. I've got personal statements. I've got letters. I've got whatever else is in the application. And you're you're talking from the point of view of a reviewer. As a reviewer... You've got a single reviewer looks at how many out of the 1900, would you yeah, say? Yeah, so, so our process, um, we're a large umbrella program, but we have a few admissions committees that are, are generally formed around various research interests. So applicants with those interests are probably going to go to faculty with similar interests. And every application we receive is read, and it's going to be read... Not by a computer? Not by a computer, but by two different faculty okay. in that research area. And so each of those two faculty are going to get their pile of, of applications to review, let's say anywhere from 15 to 20 to review uh, for, for each meeting. And they're going to score it on a few criteria, um, but effectively they're going to give each of those applications a score. And then the committee chair will compile all those scores and the scores of the two recommenders will be averaged together. And as we prepare for the meeting, there'll be a summary sheet of all the applications that were reviewed for that meeting and all of their scores. And importantly, not just the scores, Dan, but uh, reviewer comments. So the, re- the reviewer will provide some justification for why they gave the score that they did. And so what doesn't happen, though, at that point is even though we have all these numerical scores averaged together, paired with these more qualitative assessments, we don't simply rank them by number, draw a line, and then call it a day. Um, they're really there's really discussion that happens. And so the committee will basically look through the, the reviews and will the committee members who reviewed each application will talk about that application. There'll be some discussion and some back and forth. Um, it really is a, I don't know if democratic is the right word, but a really, there oftentimes can be a very thoughtful process that goes into um, the faculty who are on these admissions committees really trying to uh, make the best decisions they can with the information they have over which applicants look like they're going to be successful grad students in our program. Okay, so if it sounds like there can be a, a debate or discourse if there's maybe a strong candidate or one where they got one person give a high score, one give a low score. If both give a low score, is it kind of tabled at that point? Because you've got 1,900 applications. Typically. I can't imagine that you're going to discuss in the same detail all 1,900. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So realistically, what will happen if both reviewers agree that it's a really fantastic application, or if both reviewers agree that it's a weaker application, you're right. There'll be less discussion there. The lion's share of the discussion happens in the middle. A little bit in the, absolutely in the middle. Uh, But also the other thing you said is totally true too. The admissions chair will be on the lookout for uh, discordant scores. So um, just as you suggested, one reviewer maybe gave a much higher score than the other reviewer, and they'll have a conversation and fight it out, and usually it'll break one way or the other. Okay, so 
are there some factors that are are kind of automatically disqualifying? So I can imagine if you miss a deadline, that's bad news. But cases where I've interviewed people for jobs or received resumes, if your resume is full of typos or something, I'm probably going to automatically think you didn't pay very much attention or you use the wrong university name in your state letter of intent. Um, what are the things that are going to take me to the bottom of that pile? So I'll say this. I think sometimes things that the applicants might focus on that they believe could be a big deal uh, might not actually be as big a deal as they think. And some of the aspects that they maybe aren't thinking about could be a huge deal. So, so let, me, let me sort of give some more context here. So things that are not perfect, but they're not a huge deal. Putting the name of another school in your personal statement by mistake. We see it every year. And while usually we get a chuckle out of it, we also recognize that nearly every applicant is applying to multiple schools and writing multiple statements. And that's not going to be a kiss of death. Okay. Good to know. It's no secret that I work at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and our big rivals are right down the street, Duke. We will occasionally see a letter uh, talking about why Duke University is so great. First you shred it, then light it on fire. <laughs> While we don't love that, and that might show a little bit of non-attention to detail, uh, absolutely we have applicants we would still invite if that right. was the only negative of their application. Despite their bad judgment. You applied to Duke, so I'm not going to hold it against you. I did. I very much considered going there, uh, but then I wised up and... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The rest is history. Okay. So so what is important? If well, well, but let me not... say one other thing. So, so another thing that, that you might consider is oh, I had that, that C I got in organic chemistry. I bet that's what it was. You know, that bad grade I had sophomore year um, or even that D that I had in, in PCHEM. The thing you notice and, and you feel sensitive about. Yeah, and, and while admissions committees absolutely are going to look at your grades, especially your science coursework, they're probably not scrutinizing it to the same degree that you might think they are. They're looking more big picture, I think. Uh, what science courses have you had? Generally, how did you do? You know, not one bad grade, even a really bad grade in isolation. It maybe isn't going to tank you. But what is really important, especially for a research-based PhD program, is you have to realize that these are faculty and for biomedical PhD programs or other science PhD programs. These are scientists. And so scientists are looking for data. What are they looking for data of? They're looking for data that suggests that you are going, that you have the potential to be a successful and productive researcher. At the end of the day, that's what they're looking for evidence of. And the best evidence that is in your application of whether or not you can be a successful researcher is whether you've been a successful researcher in the past. So it's really the experience piece for PhD programs that really wins the day for applications that are really, really competitive and really, really strong versus ones that are not quite as strong. And I think this has gotten more competitive since you, were, you and I were in. If you get an application that says, I did organic chemistry lab as part of my class, but that's all the research I've done, that one almost certainly is not going to move ahead, right? Yeah, that might have counted for something back in the day when we were there. You know, I can remember, Dan, when we started grad school, we had at least a couple of people in our class who had not actually done independent lab research that's before. Right. I can tell you without a doubt, no one that did an interview in our program, certainly in the last five to seven years that I know of, 
came in with no research experience. Even if you had a 4.0 GPA, perfect GRE scores, no research experience, you're definitely not going to make it through. Okay, and if you have a paper or two, or better yet, your first author somewhere, sure. which is rare, but happens. It happens sometimes. Yeah, I mean, so having publications actually does make a difference. Josh's personal opinion is that there are a lot of factors going into whether someone prior to graduate school has their name on a paper that could have as much to do with the situation you fell into or does the lab you're in allow undergrads to publish. I think there are a lot of things that can happen outside the control of pre-graduate student that can dictate whether they have publications or not. But if you do, that absolutely is looked upon favorably uh, by admissions committees. But I think what's more important I think of this as sort of the holy trinity of research experience in your application. There are really three main components of your PhD application that I think is so, so important that really highlights highlights your experience and your ability to do research. The first one is your your CV. So your CV is where you're going to list the research experiences you've done. So you absolutely want to have that at the top or very close to the top, because that's really what the admissions committee is looking for when they look at your CV. I could almost say they may not even go beyond that. So when we get to page three of your CV and you're listing like your service, you're listing like awards you received, those may not... Girl Scout (laughs) cookie seller of... I mean, those may not even get read, right? What really we're looking for is, all right, where'd you go to school? Uh, where are you? You know, what's your sort of school history, and what research have you done, and where did you do it, and how long were you there? And so, if that's front and center, you're doing them a favor. It makes it easy, right? You don't want them to have to search for that information that they really want to know. So that's almost like the table of contents for the next thing, which is okay. Looks like Dan here went to the University of Kentucky and he worked in a lab there. Okay, great. Now, what I want to do is I want to go to that personal statement. And I want to see what Dan had to say about his time in that lab. What it is I think I accomplished and what it means. Exactly. What did you do? Did you understand it? What did you learn? So you want to also make sure there's not a disconnect between what you said you did and what you talk about in your statement. Because again, it's that research piece. Can Dan be a really great researcher? Well, how much was Dan plugged into that research he said he did on his CV? I'm going to look at the statement and he's let him tell me. All right, so you want to make sure that's in there. Um, But then the third piece, and this is as important, if not more important than the other piece, what did Dan's research advisor say about how Dan did in the lab? I need a third-party perspective from a knowledgeable source on your ability uh, in the lab, on what you accomplished. So I've got the details of what you did, I've got your description of what you did, and then I've got someone else's observation of how you did. And how often out of your 1900, let's call it 2000, how often is it that the person just has no research experience versus their personal statement didn't really capture what it was it needed to versus they thought they got a strong letter and in fact it was a weak letter or vague language about how they weren't really prepared? I would say what is less common is I think by the time most people apply to science PhD programs, they maybe even discovered that was a thing because they had done some research. So so we don't get tons and tons of applications from people who have done no research. Okay. Okay. 
If we did, though, they wouldn't be competitive. Got it. And the answer there is very simple. Go do research. <laughs> and you may decide you don't want to go to grad school, by the way. How often do you get a personal statement that you're just, this is garbage, and you throw it in the garbage can? Very few are garbage, but um, there are more than you would think that either don't describe the research or don't do a very good job talking about the research. For the record, I would never be able to get into graduate school now <laughs> with the letter that I wrote, which I will never share with you. I would love to look mine up. I have no recollection of what I wrote. But I think that letter piece is really important. And, you know, this is a really tricky one. And we've talked about it on the show. I mean, it's a, it's a critical part of the application. It is. And for the most part, these letters are confidential. So when you apply to grad school, you know, you have the option to retain your right or waive your right to have access to what is written in the oh, letter. Oh, you're talking about not my personal statement, but the letters of recommendation. Now I am talking about that. Yeah, Got the it. letters of recommendation. And so when you waive your right to view those, there's sort of a confidentiality that that's actually is important to you as an applicant where we can't share with you what was written in those letters. Now, that being said, you might think, well... And then, how often are they not as strong as the person thinks they are? I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I would say the vast majority of recommendation letters are positive. It is, it is actually quite uncommon to find a negative recommendation letter. Not negative, but I think you can smell from a mile away a letter that is uh, damning with faint praise. Well, so what admissions committees are become very astute at doing, especially folks who've served on the admissions committee for a long time, is reading between the lines and and determining a pretty good letter from a really great letter. Josh has worked in the lab for four years. He wears medium-sized gloves. Josh is a really nice He's guy. often there. <laughs> Right, exactly. Sort of these these letters written in generalities that don't have a lot of specific things to say about your, you know, what you bring to the table and your accomplishments. But that can be something that's hard to find out. Like, was it my letters that weren't strong enough? Right, and and, and a lot a lot of the people who wrote to us said I had strong letters, and it's hard for me to know how you know that. And it sounds like you can't ask. So you can't ask the program. An applicant couldn't ask me, "Hey, were my letters strong?" And and I wanted to say this too, importantly, the flip side is, you know, you might listen to what I'm saying and say, oh, well, you know, when, when I apply next year, I'm not going to waive my right. That way I can at least see what my letter said. That's even worse because the way that will be interpreted by an admissions committee, because it's right there before us, before we see a letter, did the applicant waive the right to see this letter? And it's there for the reviewer to, sorry, it's there for the letter writer to see also when they provide the letter. Which means that's the person who needs to see it. So your letter will carry much, 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 much less weight if you did not waive your right because we might interpret that as, well, the letter writer wrote that with your knowledge. So yeah, the f- there's, there's, there's a difference in the transparency to you and therefore there's influence involved. That's right. So you actually want that confidentiality because in any good things they said about you, they mean, right? Presumably. Presumably. But, but what I want to say, Dan, is... I. I don't want people to walk away from this thinking there's this epidemic of lukewarm and bad letters because it really is true. The vast majority of letters are generally pretty positive. And so what admissions committees, and this is one of the hard parts, is we're really we're really trying to tease out good applications from great applications. And sometimes it comes down to the amount of experience that you had or the degree to which you were involved. So if we shift gears a little bit from kind of how the process works and some of the reasons why you may not get an offer of for an interview um, to grad school. 
is I think there's a fairly straightforward formula for PhD programs, at least in the sciences, for becoming more competitive because really is all about experience. The vast majority of applicants who maybe don't get the outcomes they want with a little bit of extra experience, when I say experience, I mean research experience, that's really usually 90% of the time, that's what it takes to make your application go from a good application to a great application. Maybe it's six more months or a year more of research, uh, maybe in the same lab that you're in now. Maybe it is broadening your network. So maybe you've had sort of one good research experience while you're an undergrad and you've got a letter from that person and it went really well. But maybe what you need is to broaden your network and, and your base of people who can advocate for you. So a lot of, at least biomedical PhD programs, are in larger, more research-intensive schools, maybe even a, a large medical center. You know, we get a lot of applications from, and this is the type of school I went to as well, Dan, from maybe, maybe you went to a smaller school, like a regional school or a small liberal arts school, where maybe there weren't a lot of research opportunities or maybe the type of research done there was very different than the type of research happening at a large research institution. So we get these types of applicants sometimes too, where an admissions committee might say, well, they've done some research at this small school, but... How will they adapt when they come here and, and it's a much bigger, more competitive, faster-paced Exactly. World. So maybe the only thing you need, maybe you did really well in that small pond and you just need a chance to prove yourself in a bigger pond. Um, and by the way, I'll say it is a big adjustment to go from the small pond to the big pond. I know that was one of the hardest things for me, adjusting from a small school to a big school. Sometimes taking six months to a year to find a technician position or some, some other opportunity to do research at maybe a bigger research institution can help you connect with a new faculty member who can write you a letter of recommendation. So that's a second additional knowledgeable person that can vouch for your abilities. Uh, but then also it shows that you've had experience maybe in the type of place that you would like to be a graduate student someday in the future. Okay. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is maybe I applied this year and I had my research experience as an undergrad, or maybe I took some time uh, to be a technician. Is it actually worthwhile thinking about changing labs? And it sounds like what you're saying is, Yes, if it gives you another, if you can leave the current lab and still get a strong letter and then go to a place that's going to round out your experience and give you another advocate that can write a letter for you. Yeah. And, you know, the example I was using, uh, which I think is common for a lot of people, you have the experience at the small school and maybe that's the only experience. All of your letters are from there. And I, I can say, truthfully, that type of applicant might have a harder time rising to the top in our admissions process. But another type of applicant, uh, maybe you're this way. Let's say you have a really strong idea of the type of research and the type of graduate program you want to do. So let's say, for example, what you really think you want to do is go into a neuroscience PhD program. You think neuroscience is really interesting. You would love to do neuroscience research, but maybe you haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. Uh, maybe you did some psychology research um, as an undergrad, or, or, you know, maybe you did some basic biology research. So you apply to all these neuroscience PhD programs. Well, that's another, that's another area where you could be held back is maybe you have some experience, but if you're applying to more specific disciplines, more specific programs, the really competitive applicants in those programs, if they're really competitive programs, are going to be applicants who have already had experience that is in that discipline. So what you might need is 
to seek out some opportunities for you to get some experience in that area where you think you're interested and then apply. And then you'll be one of those really competitive applicants. That makes sense. There's just a mismatch between your experience and the experience of everybody else applying in that field. Mm -hmm. Any advice on maybe getting a publication? Is that possible? Would it help? I mean, publications never hurt. And again, Josh's opinion is that having a publication or not having a publication really does not tell me a whole lot about what kind of graduate student you're going to be. But there is no denying that having publications on your CV are not helpful. It's not going to harm you. It absolutely will not harm you. And, and a lot of faculty do like to this see This person wasted so much time publishing all the time. <laughs> well, and you know, I think the more competitive a program is, it really sometimes comes down to splitting hairs about who's in and who's out. And sometimes things like, well, this applicant, you know, both these applicants have really great experience that's relevant, but we have two of them and we only have one spot. Well, this one has authorship on a publication, so maybe we'll go with that. So one of the things you might think about as a goal, and again, I want to be really clear here, I think, because I haven't, if I haven't explicitly said it, I think the number one thing you can do if you don't get into science PhD programs is to go do more research. Just go do research somewhere else. Get a job doing research. There's lots of technician positions. There are post-bac programs. We can talk more about those in a moment. But maybe you go do that as you go do that for a year or two or three, maybe make that a goal. I would like to try to get authorship on a publication. And that's something you can discuss with the advisor, with the PI that you're talking to about this technician position. And one thing I know about faculty, so if you go and get a research position at an academic institution, faculty really love people who are moving towards PhD programs. There are a lot of different individuals in undergrad or right out of undergrad who come to faculty for positions in their lab, kind of for entry-level tech positions. And they do so for different reasons. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of of these fresh bachelor's degree um, students who come and they want to go to med- medical school and they need a gap year and they want to get some experience. And that's totally fine. But what faculty really love are these, uh, you know, these people right on undergrad that want to work in the lab and their goal is, I want to go get a PhD. And so I think you make those goals you have really clear as you're talking to faculty trying to get these technician positions. Because one, I think it's going to give you a leg up that that's one of your goals. Because that's something, A, they know a little bit about and put some value in. But it also projects what kind of experience you want to have. Because some people who are applying for technician positions, they really just want a job. They want I need the line item number 237 <laughs> on my med school application that says, I did research. Yeah, I don't want to think too much. I just want to, you know, tell me what my job is. Let me process these samples. I'll get in, I'll get out. But what you're saying is, you know, I want to go to a PhD program. I want to learn to think like a scientist, plan my experiments, grow in my independence as a researcher. And most PIs are going to be happy to help you get that type of experience. And you can also discuss, you know, maybe getting my name on a paper is going to be really important to me. And, and I think the other thing you can do, and, you know, I think this conversation um, that I'm about to have is to is about to what degree are you open and transparent about the fact you applied to grad school and didn't get in. And I think the answer is absolutely be completely transparent about what happened and what you're trying to do. As you apply for these technician jobs. Absolutely. I think as you're applying to the technician job, but also as you apply to graduate school again in the future, whether it's a year later or two years later, is I think what you say is as 
proof that I'm actually actually want to do this. I mean, you have great proof that that's what you want to do. You took the time and energy and expense to apply to PhD programs. You know what? It didn't work out. Because it didn't work out, I want to get more experience so that I can be a more competitive applicant in the future. Because that says a lot of things about you, the most important of which is that I experienced a setback. And what did I do with that setback? Well, I didn't just say, oh, well, I guess science isn't going to work out for me. Well, no, you looked around and you dusted yourself off and you said, okay, well, this didn't work the first time. So what do I need to do? I need to go out, get more experience, learn some more, make myself more competitive. Because you know what? That says a lot about you and how you're going to react when you do go to grad school and you inevitably encounter setbacks. We know ourselves, Dan, it's not a matter of if you're going to hit a setback in graduate school. It's whether it'll hit you back. <laughs> and it probably will. It almost certainly will. And you know, every graduate student who ends up walking out the door with a PhD had to fall down and get back up time and time and time again. And by being able to show evidence that you have that inside you by just the fact that you didn't, you know, you didn't just walk away when it didn't work out the first time, but you said, okay, you know, that's fine. I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to move forward. Says a lot about you and your ability to do this. And I think that answers a question that we got from Chris, which was, would it be a detriment to my chances for admission if the committee sees that I was previously rejected? And what you're saying is, no, you should make it clear that you you got rejected, but you were so passionate about this that you went and did the work to, to apply again and to do a better job. Absolutely. Awesome. Josh, you also run a program that helps people make these transitions, and I know these programs exist around the country. Can you talk a little bit just briefly about PrEP program that you're doing and what that looks like for uh, people who maybe want to apply? Yeah, so there there are a few different options. So, so one of them that's probably going to be the best option for a lot of people because there are probably the most of these, the highest number of these jobs is going out and trying to get a technician position in a lab. If you've been spent any time in labs at all at large research institutions, there are lots of technicians and, you know, technicians are just folks who are there doing research for pay. They're not in part of a a program. They're not students. Um, they are professionals who work in the lab for an hourly rate or a salary. And, and there are people who are technicians for different reasons. Some people just do it for a job. Some people are lifetime technicians. But a lot of people are trying to get more experience. Um, I have received a lot of questions before about how do I find a technician position? It's Save not it like for a different a, show, Josh. Is that a different show? I don't know. Do you have advice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do. I think one piece of advice that I will give is you don't have to be super picky about, or I would caution you about being super picky. Like I have to work with this exact person doing this exact type of research, unless doing a certain type of research is the way you become more competitive. But pull up the website of the big research institution that's in your area or where you want to go. Find the departments that are generally in the area that you want to be in. And just start emailing people and say, especially if you're in the area, say, hey, I'm in the area, applying to graduate school. I'm trying to get more experience. Would you have a few minutes to meet with me and talk about things going on in your lab? Yeah, I, I worked with uh, a technician who worked in the lab that I was a graduate student in. Then he decided he wanted to study neuroscience. He went and worked in a neuroscience lab, and then he got into a neuroscience program. So getting those, getting in and then getting those connections, developing some of the skills, I think is is good advice for for getting that journey started. Absolutely. So then, but then there are a few programs that are specifically for um, post baccalaureate. So this will be called post bac programs. 
And there are a number of different uh, postback programs. You could actually Google search postback program in whatever area. So you could say biomedical postback program or chemistry postback program or whatever. Um, B A C C. P O S T B A C. Oh, B A C. Yep. Or post baccalaureate. Uh, I don't know that I could spell baccalaureate, but Google probably can figure out what you mean. So I run a program called the PrEP program. And so PrEP is funded by the NIH. And there are 30-some-odd prep programs across the country. Uh, these are programs for students who want to transition from undergrad to PhD programs uh, with a specific focus on reaching out to and supporting applicants from groups that are traditionally underrepresented in the sciences. So if that defines you and you can read more about what that means, if you uh, just Google search NIH prep, um, those can be great programs to help you meet your goal. There are also the NIH themselves have a really large program actually of postbacs. I think they have a few hundred postbacs on their campus. And there's a program called the IRTA program or IRTA. I'm not exactly, I don't remember off the top of my head what IRTA stands for, but if you Google NIH IRTA, you will find a web link to with information about that program. That is open to anyone who is a United States citizen or permanent resident who has a college degree and wants to gain some more experience for, and I think typically these are two-year fellowships to work in a lab at the NIH gaining experience. And I know we've had a number of PhD students enter our program who were former IRTA fellows. So this can be a really great opportunity, one, to get some more experience, but also to get some experience with what a government lab is like, which could be very different than an academic lab. Everybody has to work on coronavirus. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you true. thought you wanted to work on. Uh, I don't know if that's true. So one thing about this IRTA program is that while a lot of the positions are at the NIH in and around Bethesda, Maryland, there are a lot of governmental labs that also take IRTA postbacs um, around the country. Dan, I know there are some who work in Research Triangle Park here in central North Carolina. Uh, just glancing at their website, there are other sites in... Hamilton, Montana, in Farmington, Massachusetts, Phoenix, Arizona, Detroit, Michigan. So this might be an option that is in your region of the country as well, um, even if you're not interested in traveling to, to Maryland. Josh, I feel much more hopeful about my, my prospects. Thank you for answering all these questions. Um, and please, anybody, feel free to write to us if you have other questions that we didn't answer about this process one last thing I wanted to talk about is I think we've acknowledged how painful it can be to to have this life plan get off track, to be derailed, and to feel like, you know, I remember thinking, if I don't go to grad school this year, I'm going to be too old to ever go to grad school, and I'm going to be, you know, 24 when I start, and if I'm 24, that's way too late, and allow me to speak into your life like as your future self. You have time. And the thing that I was hearing you say, Josh, that, that struck me was if you love research, which, which we want you to do if you're going to apply to graduate school, then taking a year or two years to work as a technician shouldn't make, <laughs> shouldn't make your life terrible. It should be a natural expression of what it is that you want to do. And in fact, I think there are, I have seen cases where people took those one or two years and they finished school much faster because they got the experience in that time period when they had flexibility. They could decide, I do want to do this or I don't, or I want to change to this lab or I want to go be a technician here. And having those options and preserving those options is really valuable. Once you are in graduate school, you are locked in. 
It's very difficult to leave with a master's degree. It's very difficult to leave at all. And there's, there's a confining aspect to it. So I would encourage you, if you love research, go do research and, and don't be discouraged that you're not in the graduate program right away. Because I think you're going to develop skills that are going to be even more valuable when you do get in. There you go. Uh, we know this is a tough time for a lot of people um, and an exciting time for other people and a confusing time for probably everybody as they make decisions. All right. Well, thanks again to everybody who wrote. We only read a, a fraction of what we got, but um, we do appreciate those emails. And if you have a question or a topic idea, obviously, we'd love to hear it. Email us podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like it, if you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com and click on the become a patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the sour beer money. And thank you for the ongoing support from our patrons. And thanks to Pat for this tasty peach brew. Thanks, Pat. I actually finished it. You did it. I did it. All right. Well, Josh, uh, stay safe out there. Wash your hands all the time. Do not put vodka on them. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.